You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. And so we've been uh, in in First John for some time at Mercy's Door, and we're kind of getting where we're going uh, real methodically. Where we're, we're doing uh, his first letter, then his second letter, then his third letter, and we're trying to break it up in meaningful sections for preaching. But I want you guys to remember, I kind of held this out to you a couple of weeks ago, that when you write a letter to somebody, it's meant to be read in one sitting. And some of the way that John writes is really beautified by reading it in one sitting. I talked about it in the park last week, that one of the ways that John kind of builds a case is he talks around it in like this spiral fashion until he kind of lands on the point that he's making. And he mentions something, and then he doesn't really go real deep into it, and he moves on, and then he comes back to that point, and he deepens it as he comes back to it over and over again. And we can miss some of that beauty and some of that style if we're reading it just in little chunks. And so really want to encourage you to be reading the Bible, reading the letter of 1 John midweek, leading up to the preached word, in order that you can kind of understand where we are in his letter. You understand? That happens for us this morning. John brings up a topic that he's already been talking about back in chapter 2, but he kind of deepens his point and starts taking it in yet another direction. Now, we said that John wrote this letter primarily for what reason? Who can give it to me? That we may know. Hey, we even named the sermon series after, right? He, it's, a, it's, a, it's been called a letter of assurance, that he wants to build confidence in you that you would know what you know. And here he's going to reintroduce us to a people who are marching among the, the early church, espousing some things that are simply untrue. And he wants those who are of the truth to be able to detect it. And so the way that John structures his, this section of the letter is he opens up with this kind of warning. And then from the warning, he gives us some instruction on what to do with that warning. And then he gives some explanation as to why we need to heed the warning. Then he moves from the warning and the instructions to assurance, because he just keeps doing that, because it's a letter of assurance. And then he lands this portion with a simple declaration, a statement of fact. And I'm going to kind of walk you through uh, the, the way he constructs this portion of his thoughts. And my hope as we work our way through it is twofold. I want you guys to be able to know who your brother is and to know who is not your brother. That's number one. Number two is I want you guys to deepen your understanding of the incarnation, what it means that Christ came in the flesh, okay? Those are the two goals for us this morning, and we're going to ask that the Lord would encourage our hearts as he does it. So let's begin. Chapter 4, verse 1, John opens like this. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So the warning is do not believe every spirit. And the instruction is test them. And the reason is because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Do not believe every spirit, but test them because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And this isn't the first time that we heard this. Back in chapter 2, I preached on this uh, more diligently, but it's not the main point of our passage today. He says in chapter 2.18, children, it's the last hour, and as you've heard, that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, 
but they were not of us, for if they'd been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. You remember this? So he's already talked about these, these antichrists that have gone out, these false teachers that have gone out, that they've even gone out from among the brotherhood. And, he, and he, he talks about that, and now he's come back to that idea, and he said, we must not believe every spirit, but that we must test the spirits in order to discern whether or not they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out. Now, when we talk about not believing every spirit, I want to acknowledge that you might have all kinds of different backgrounds this morning, and so I want to kind of land it as practically as possible that when we talk about spirits in this passage, we're talking about people, okay? C.S. Lewis said, uh, I don't know how helpful it is depending on where your theology is at with this, but uh, C.S. Lewis said that we are not bodies who have a spirit, but that we are spirits who have a body, Okay? And something that he meant by that, again, I don't think it's super helpful because it kind of elevates one over the other. I want you to know, like, humans were always designed from the beginning to be body and spirit. We're not more one than another, but, we, like, by design, we are bodies with spirits, right? But I know he's right in this way, which is that every last one of us is going to have a period of time in our existence where we don't have a body, but we will not all have a time in our existence where we don't have a spirit. So in that way, I would say that C.S. Lewis is correct. You're like, Adam, what are you talking about? I'm talking about when we are absent the body and present with the Lord, that when we die, this body gets laid in the ground and we go to be in the presence of the Lord, absent the body, awaiting the fulfillment of the promise he made that we would be resurrected into glorified bodies to dwell bodily with him forever in the new earth. And so that exists, but, we, but th before that happens, before the fulfillment of our glorification, of the promise of our resurrected, glorified bodies, we will be present with the Lord, and it will be wonderful. Which means that a body is not necessarily required in order to enjoy the presence of the Lord. The Spirit is. However, our enjoyment of the Lord is magnified when we enjoy Him bodily in our glorified state. And so we can look forward to it without feeling like there's something missing that we enjoy him in spirit. Now, why would I start with that when that has nothing to do with the passage? Well, because he's referring to spirits. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. And so I need you to understand that everyone who comes up and speaks to you, who teaches you, they're not neutral. They are speaking to you. The tongue reveals what's in the heart. What, what you hear flowing from the mouths of men flows from their spirit. And so when I stand up here, I've been preaching this recently, the only reason why you ought to listen to me and the only reason why we ought to read with any seriousness the words penned by John is because of the spirit in which they were spoken or written. I am indwelled by the Spirit of God, and so I am speaking from the Spirit of God as I confess the Christ to you from the written word. John, likewise, as one of the apostles, was filled with the Spirit of God, and so when he wrote, he wrote from the Spirit of God. But those who don't have the Spirit of God, the Scriptures testify, are spiritually bankrupt. They're spiritually dead. They speak from, they speak from their status as spiritually dead sinners, and they're under the influence and the power, the scriptures say, of the spirit of the air, the of the present age, the prince of the power of the air, our enemy. And so discerning the difference between the two 
is important to John, and it's important to you. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Why? Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And there's your real proof that we're talking about people. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, if you were here for our introductory sermon uh, in this sermon series, I talked to you about what those prophets were saying. We have documentation of what types of heresies were emerging in the area of Ephesus in the first century. It would become mature, in mature Gnosticism in the second century, but there was already heresy emerging in the Ephesian church in the first century in the day that John knew. See, John was in Ephesus pastoring a network of house churches, uh, these church, this church that Paul had planted, and Paul had warned, I know that when I depart, fierce wolves are going to emerge even from among your own selves who want to devour you. And that's where John says, you heard it said that Antichrist was coming and now many have come. And he's now giving them, he's shepherding them. And what do I do about this? How do I respond? Well, these first century heretics, they were early Gnostics called proto-Gnostics. And they were subscribing to these two ideas. One is called Docetism, one's called Serinthianism, but they were, they were coming into existence in John's day. Where these early Gnostics, it was common in Greek thought that the ultimate goal of humanity was to escape the wickedness of the physical world and to ascend to the goodness of a spiritual world. And that you could do that through like higher esoteric knowledge. And so the way that they thought about it is that we, even before death and all of that, can somehow elevate to a higher height of being, to a, to a, a deeper peace and satisfaction through ascending beyond the physical. That the problem of sin is, is a physical problem, and we escape it through spiritual ascension. Kind of this philosophical view. But in that worldview, this false worldview, when you say that the whole goal of humanity is to escape the physical, to ascend to the spiritual, and then somebody says the height of the spiritual world, God himself descended and took on flesh and entered into the physical world, this turns your whole philosophy on its head. And so these new philosophies, these false ideologies start to emerge, and they were this. One school of thought said Jesus Christ never really had a body. Jesus Christ appeared to the people as manifestations and as apparitions, but that he wasn't really born, he wasn't really crucified, he didn't really have a body. And then a less extreme heresy emerged that said that Jesus of Nazareth was a real dude, and he, but he was just a dude. And the Christ is a spirit, and the Christ descended upon Jesus and, and almost like a possession and compelled him for three years of ministry and departed from him at his crucifixion so that the Christ wasn't crucified. The Christ is a mere spirit, and the Christ never became a body. And so John has, likely has these types of things that are, that are growing in the area of Ephesus. And remember, if you read your whole New Testament, this is not the only heresy. This is the Ephesian heresy, right? In, in, in Galatia, you've got Paul writing, who has bewitched you as they tell you that you must be circumcised if, and you must have faith plus works, faith plus obedience to the law to be, a, a true, to be truly made right with God and all kinds of other heresies in between. This is distinctly the Ephesian heresy that is moving throughout that region of the world at the time that somehow Jesus could not have been a man. The Christ could not have been a man because we can't ascend to God unless we escape the body and become spirit like him. 
So with these heresies in mind, John, this is, I'm making some assumptions that John has these types of heresies in mind when he gives this test. Well, how do I determine that you are a false prophet or if you are speaking from God? Verse 2, well, by this you know, the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And so he gets kind of right at the heart of it. Listen, if somebody comes among you and claims that the Christ didn't really become flesh, he's not from God. He just gives you kind of a direct answer to that refutation. But then he says something that's almost a little bit more jarring depending on what your church background is, which is that everyone who confesses the Christ is of God. And so two things happen here, and you're going to have to identify for yourself which one, which camp you're in. And on the one hand, John is telling you that way more people are your brother than you think. Because if they confess Christ in the flesh, they are from God. And there are a whole bunch of people who confess that while they're getting a whole bunch else wrong, aren't there? And then he also says that there's a person who's not your brother, who you may be inclined to think is your brother, who wants to change the central truths about the Christ becoming flesh, about God walking among us on this earth. He says that man is not your brother, but that man is a deceiver. Now, I'm going to get around to like, clarifying some things because there's probably a tension that rises up in you as you consider that. And I'm going to settle it a little bit, but I want you to sit in it for a second. I want you to think about the person that you believe is not your brother based on some doctrine that they're wrong about. Several months ago, when we were still in the Gospel of John, I preached on John 17, the high priestly prayer. And at the end of his prayer, Jesus talks about that he asks the Father that he would make us one, just as he and the Father are one. And he says, I'm not just praying for these, talking about his apostles, I'm praying for all of those who will believe through their ministry, that they would all be one, just as we are one. And in that sermon, I talked to you guys about the difference between uh, a, a, a primary issue and a, and a secondary issue, but I don't even like that language very much. I talked to you about fighting like you're fighting with a wolf and fighting like you're fighting with your spouse, and that within the brotherhood that we contend for one another and that outside the brotherhood, we contend against one another, and that there's no crossover. And I, I want you guys to kind of have this land at home a little bit and have you think about what it's like to be a pastor, responsible, according to the scriptures, for defending sound doctrine, for fending off wolves, for, for, for protecting the sheep and inviting the flock into the knowledge of the truth, for defending against error, and then we go to GC, right? I'm in, I'm in gospel community like the rest of you. And you guys say all kinds of things. And you guys listen to all kinds of teachers. YouTube prophets and the rest of it, right? And so do I. And there's something in me as a shepherd, I think it's good, I think that the Lord put it there, that wants to defend, that wants to protect, that wants to be like, listen, maybe not, maybe not that teacher, maybe, and wants to like sign off on these things, right? But the Lord has to then come behind that and say, hey, the heart is good, but the power is Christ. 
and the power of Christ is in them, not just in you, which means that he is, he is going to defend you and protect you and bring you into all knowledge, like John talks about, far better than I ever could. And so there have been two conversations that happen all the time in my Christian walk. One of them is I'm sitting with a brother in Christ who is right about the incarnation. We're, we're, we're brothers because of that, but who's wrong on like everything else. And sitting there and, and wanting to believe in that moment in pride or whatever that you're not my brother because you're wrong about this thing. And so the Lord softened some of the arrogance of youth in Christianity to say, goodness, like, have you arrived? Have you arrived? And so to calmly slow down and to contend for you, to go seek out the word together, to seek the truth together in hope and in trust that if the Holy Spirit who lives in me lives in you, that he is going to bring you into the knowledge of the truth because that's what he does. He's not going to forsake you or leave you. And then the other side is true and turns out to have been happening far more often than what I thought which is that I was the guy in error, and in my arrogance couldn't see it. And he was correcting me and bringing me into the knowledge of the truth through the church, my brothers, contending for my good. And so when you're in gospel community with a brother who is wrong about all kinds of different things, you wrestle with him and for him, knowing that you're going to have dinner together later. You're going to go to bed together later. That this is your brother and sister in Christ. You're going to dwell for eternity with them. And one day you will behold the truth face to face. And so you patiently walk together toward the truth. I mean, is this not what all the epistles are? Christians writing to Christians about the truth? We contend for them and, we are, and, and we're with them. And we never deny that we are one, even as there is discrepancy in our understanding of the other, of, of the other matters. But John says, I mean, I want to make it clear, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. The sole requisite for inclusion in the family of God is confession. We're going to talk about confession of the incarnation of Christ. Confession of the incarnation of Christ is the test. And all those who do not confess this are not from God. Now, when I say confession of the incarnation of Christ, this is loaded. And all of us have different, we're in different places about what we understand about all that the incarnation of Christ entails. But John says, if they confess it, they're from God. And if they don't, then they're not. For John, it was that simple. So I have to be careful not to come up here and caveat for him and explain for him. He means what he said. He said it under the influence of the Holy Spirit as an apostle of God, writing it to the Ephesian church, and he's writing it for us. If they confess the incarnated, the incarnated Christ, the incarnate Christ, then they are confessing their brotherhood. And so Pastor Brett talked about it during our confession this morning. We've been talking about it, that how confession of sin goes hand in hand with confession of the Christ. What we're doing when we confess our sin and confess our faith is where, like, like Pastor Brett said, we are agreeing with God. So to confess that Christ dwelled bodily means to agree with Christ about Christ. That the things that Jesus said and claimed and showed himself to be are the things with which you are agreeing, with what you are confessing. Our confession of faith is to say, 
Jesus is who he said he was. Jesus is who he showed himself to be. That's confessing the incarnate Christ. Confessing your sin goes hand in hand with confessing the Christ because what you're then doing is uniting yourself with him, not yourself, but the spirit of Christ in you is uniting you with him as you say, and these truths mean something. If he only if he was really human, we, I just can't go back and preach all my sermons again, but only if he was really human can he save me. And only if he's fully God can he save me. So God, eternal God, had to become man, walk among us, live a perfect life for us, die a substitutionary death for us, take up that life again by the power of the Spirit, walk among us as a, as a great, before a great cloud of witnesses, show himself to have conquered death, and then to ascend before a great cloud of witnesses to the right hand of the Father where he continues to dwell eternally, interceding for you. He is now your perfect substitute. So when I confess my sin, why would I do that ever unless all of that is true? If he's not human, he can't live for me, and if he can't live the perfect life for me, why do I confess my, I gotta cover up and I gotta live better. If he didn't really live, then he didn't really die, and if he didn't die, then he can't die for me, so I gotta punish myself or I gotta wait for my punishment. If he didn't ascend for me, then this life is all there is, and so I need to stuff it full of all of the pleasure that I can. If he's not interceding for me, then I need somebody else to intercede for me, or I need to intercede for myself. You have to confess the fullness of the incarnation of Christ, God taking on human flesh in order to be a brother. To deny the incarnation is to deny the tenets of Christianity. So the Docetus and the Serinthians were not Christians. They were not brothers because they denied the incarnation of Christ. Now, similarly, you will have people who say to you today, they won't use those terms, but they'll say to you today, I affirm that Jesus was a historical figure, that Jesus of Nazareth lived, and he was a great teacher, and he was even a prophet. I mean, you can kind of pick, pick your poison, you can, you can pick your heresy. Everyone's got a claim about Jesus. Some of them, just like the Docetus, he didn't really live silly, but people still say it. Others saying he lived, but he wasn't who he said, or he wasn't who the apostles said, or whatever. These people are not your brothers, is what John is saying. He who confesses the Christ in the flesh, the incarnate Christ, God made man, this is your brother. So if he's wrong about everything else, you labor the rest of your life in discipleship relationships to walk closer to him and with him because these are your brothers. And be ready to find out that you were wrong about a whole bunch of stuff yourself. But if they're denying that, this is not yet your brother. So what is he? Your enemy, right? No. Your mission field. And so Jesus has something very clear to say about each of these two groups. One is your brother, and so you love him like your brother, and you pursue unity. You contend for one another. The other is your mission field. And so you can, if you're within the church, we contend against you if you're a wolf trying to devour sheep. But that ultimately the goal is to see you repent and receive Christ in order that you can become my brother. We want to see our enemies made our brothers. They're not our enemies because we've declared them so. They're our enemies because they've declared us so. And our heart, just like Christ's heart, is toward them and toward their redemption. Does this make sense to you? Don't believe every spirit. 
test them to see whether they are all from God because many false teachers have gone out. Well, how do I test them? Do they confess Christ in the flesh, the incarnation? Well, okay, what is the incarnation? I could not do this in one sitting. I'm going to give you some. When we confess that Christ came in the flesh, we confess that the person of the incarnation is the eternal Son. So that means that we're denying all the heresies that say that, that, the, that the person of the incarnation came into being on the day that he was born or on the day that the Spirit fell on him or whatever, but that from eternity past, he existed as the Christ and that he entered into the human story and took on a human nature. So the incarnation says that God became man, not that the Christ was created. There are a great many heretics today who teach some version of that. Two, we confess that he is the full image and expression of the Father, therefore fully God. That he's not some lesser deity or a lesser God or some prophet or merely something like this, but that he is the full image of the invisible God. The Father revealing himself to us through the incarnate Messiah. Three, we confess that as God the Son, he's eternally existed in relation to the Father and Spirit in the triune Godhead, now glorious displayed in the incarnation. What I mean by this one is that we are, he didn't subtract from his nature when he took on human flesh, but that he added to his nature. That he he, he took humanity upon himself, and in so doing, he didn't vacate his deity. He continued an eternal relationship with the Father and the Spirit, even as he grafted the nature of humanity into his own nature in order that he would stand in as our advocate. For he took the fullness of human nature upon himself, and yet without sin. That he wasn't God on earth pretending to be human, but he was God on earth human, that he didn't even set aside, this is my fifth point, that he'd ever even, even though he limited his divine life among us, that he didn't override the limitations of the human nature. What I mean is Jesus hungered, that Jesus thirsted, that Jesus felt pain, that Jesus felt mental anguish. We saw Jesus display all of humanity in his earthly ministry, even though he never shed his divine nature in order to do it. It's a mystery. We confess that he was born of a virgin conceived by the Spirit. We confess that uh, he was never merely human, that he, uh, he continued to act in his divine nature even in his human nature. Like he didn't take a break for 32 to 33 years from reigning over the universe. He remained united to the Father and the Spirit in the act of ministry for all mankind, even in his human nature. He became the firstborn of the new creation. This is, uh, these are all sermons in and of themselves. And if you're like, just write them down, like, I didn't get that one, and then send me an email. But when I say that he became the firstborn of the new creation, what I mean is that it was a seed that results in the new earth that you being grafted into the life, death, and resurrection of Christ means that you are united with him in the new creation, that you've been made new, and that because he went first, you can anticipate with clarity what's coming for you. Eternal bodily reign with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. And lastly, that he stands alone as Lord and King. 
Savior and God. That we don't become like Christ to the point that we become gods. We become like Christ to the point that we become like perfected humans. Back to the original design that, that we were always created for. And each one of these matters, and then there's like 50 more, 1,000 more. I'll spend my life mining the beauties of Christ and what it means to, that he was fully God and fully man. But it's at least these 10 things, and this was from a week of sermon prep, like really sit and think about what it means to confess that the Christ dwelled bodily among us. Dwell on these things. And you'll have ears to hear when somebody makes a claim about Jesus that makes him less than the incarnate Christ. Some of the cults today, like Mormonism, for example, I don't want to pick on the Mormons. I kind of want to pick on the Mormons. The the Mormons believe that there was total apostasy within the church after the apostolic age and that they, the Mormon church, which was founded in 1830, has restored the church. They say that God the Father was once a man and that he progressed to godhood and that now he's an immortal man. There are polytheists who believe that the Trinity is actually three distinct gods and that there are potentially thousands of gods more than these. They say that humans, just like God the Father, can go through a process to attain godhood themselves. They say that Jesus was a child that was born of God the Father and a spiritual mother in the spiritual realm and that he progressed to become a deity and then he came into the world through conception in Mary's womb. They preach a whole bunch of stuff about the three kingdoms of glory and in heaven and that you don't even need to believe in Jesus or confess him to enter into the first stage of glory. They teach that Adam's transgression in the garden was noble because it enabled humans to become immortal in the future. And they're ultimately universalists. They have a vague understanding of hell, um, but it's for like the, the absolute worst of the worst. Everybody pretty much gets level one of glory in heaven and a bunch more stuff. And don't like hate on any Mormon friends that you have. Most of them maybe don't even know that that's formally what the Mormon church believes. But I have some Mormon friends and they believe we're brothers. They believe that there's enough overlap between their theology and our theology that we're pretty much the same. And for me, the difference between the Mormon and the Christian who's just confused about a whole bunch of different doctrines is that they're getting Jesus wrong. And when you get Jesus wrong, and Jesus is the, is the, the, the crescendo of Christianity, the one to whom all things point and from whom all things flow, you're simply not a Christian brother. Now, it makes sense that the heretic who believes that all are saved through some general sense and that it's not required to confess Christ would say that everybody fits under that umbrella. But Christianity is not like that. We confess what Christ said about the Christ. And what Christ said about the Christ is that all are unable to come to the Father, that the only way to him is through Christ himself and that you come to Christ through confession of his life, death, and resurrection on your behalf. And so Christianity is an exclusive religion while also being wildly inclusive. It's open to anybody, but there's only one entryway, and it is the incarnate Christ standing in for you, united with him by the Holy Spirit. And so these people exist. They're all over the place. 
those who confess the Christ incarnate and those who do not. And you're called to test them. Are they my brother? Are they of God? Or are they not? And then he gives this assurance. This is the assurance I want you to receive. You can do this. John doesn't say to do something that you don't have the power to do. He appeals to the Holy Spirit within you and says that in the hour that you are standing before somebody who espouses a message that denies the deity of Christ, you have ears to detect that, and you can know that you are not hearing the words of God. You can do this. Like, well, I don't know my whole Bible. They didn't even have a whole Bible, the people that he was writing to. They hadn't finished writing it yet. And he said they could do it because he was appealing to the Holy Spirit within them. And that's the ego check for the pastor, that the church is not depending on the pastor to bring them into all knowledge of the truth as if we have it, but it's to say we, weak-minded as we are, and you, weak-minded as you are, go in our frailty to the God who indwells us in trust that the spirit of truth will reveal all things to us that we need, not just to be saved, but to walk in his pleasure. And so he gives this assurance, little children, you are from God and, have, and you have overcome them. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Now you'll notice that he uses past tense when he gives this encouragement. He says, you have overcome them. Like before you even start doing the test of is this person my brother or not, you've already overcome them. Well, how? Do you think that they started wanting to have you? after you became a Christian? No. The world not only wanted to have you, the world had you. The world had you. You belonged to the world. You were under the prince of darkness. You were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked. You were spiritually bankrupt. You were hopeless until God became flesh for you and saved you. You have overcome them because you were once in those shackles and you no longer are. And so you don't contend with the person who is still in shackles in fear that you're going to end up in shackles. You contend with the one in shackles for your brother's sake and for their sake as your mission field. You have this assurance. Little children, he's so tender, little children, you are from God, which is to say John knew his flock. He could testify that you confess the incarnate Christ. So hear me say, you are from God. Church, you are from God. You have overcome them. So what he's saying is, this test that I'm giving you isn't for you. It's a tool for you to assess the false teachers that are coming for you. And then he gives this second assurance. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And I can't over-preach this this year because the Lord's made it so clear to me that it's the loud doctrine of mercy's door this year. He is in you. The Spirit of God is in you, mercy's door. Do you get this? Do you understand that you did not save you, that you do not keep you, that you do not heap your good works on top of your salvation in order to please God, 
that God himself has made you his temple, and now he does his will and his purpose through you and in you, and it is sure and done because he reigns within you. Do you get that your flesh is dead and you have been made alive in the spirit? Do you get this? You don't. I don't. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And this is my warning. You know, John, John was writing, he was writing to people that he knew were Christians. He was writing to his church. He, he, his anticipation was that the readers of his letter are the brothers, because he always addresses them as such. But he wasn't writing to you. And I'm reading his letter to you. And so my question is, is, is he writing to you? Or are you somebody who should read this and be like, oh, I'm the guy he's writing against. And if I know you in this church, I want you to hear me say with the heart of a shepherd like they got to hear John say with the heart of a shepherd. I'm not, if you, if you, I don't believe you're a Christian, you know that because we've talked. Like, we, like you've, you've acknowledged that you're somewhere outside the camp. Otherwise, I see and talk to the brothers in your GC so that you can hear the same from people who walk real closely with you. I see the spirit of Christ in you. You are regularly making my faith stronger because I can see the Lord moving in you. That's incredible. I see God in you. I've told this story before. We, I think year two of the church, we did a marriage study, and the most impactful moment in the marriage study was we had everybody turn to their spouse and tell them one thing that they can see God actively doing in them. And it was life-changing for spouses who were accustomed to talking to each other that way to be like, hold on. We said, to, we said to the spouses, you get a front row seat to the ministry of God in that person's life. Do you let them hear what you see him doing enough so that when they can't see it, they know that their brother who's walking right next to them can. So we turned to our spouses and we said, here's a couple of places that I've seen the Lord in you. Wait, you can see God in me? You know what that's like to hear those words? I'd like us to become great at speaking words like that over one another. John offers that assurance and he gives a declaration. And this is a little gloomy but it's also really freeing. It says, we are from God, verse 6. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever does not, is not from God does not listen to us. The verse before that, he says of the world, he says, they, these false prophets, are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. And he says it in this real, like, dry, just declarative statement way, doesn't he? It's not really a warning. It's not really go do something about this. It's not really, he's just saying what is. And earlier in the letter, he had said that these people who were of the world, who were with us but were not of us, that they went out from among us, but if they were of us, they would have remained with us. Remember this? He's just, all he's saying there is they were of the world. And so they went with the world. And that these things reveal themselves because what is in a man reveals itself. Like, God can't be in a person and hide. And the man can't pretend to have God in him and hide. Not long. 
these things reveal themselves, John is saying. And so when he says to do the test, he's not saying, like, do it like you're grilling them, like you're like a, like a, a PI, and you're really trying to, like, poke around there and be like, are you really a Christian? He's saying, those who are of the world speak of the world, and the world listens to them. Those who are of God, they speak of the Christ, and the church hears them. He's saying it's kind of simple. And that's encouraging because Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. And it means that even when we turn and we see that this person who we hoped and thought was a brother is actually the mission field, we now don't craft clever arguments to try to get them to ascend academically from one position to another. We appeal to the spirit in us to take what is spiritually dead and to bring it to life, and we know we can because he did it for us. And so there's just this freedom Say, oh, you're of the world. I can't do anything about that. I know who can. The Lord in me. And the Lord has been gathering his remnant and through every means that you can imagine, whether it was a pillar of cloud and fire, whether it was a donkey, whether it was the foolish mouths of the prophets, whether it was a burning bush, whether it was the apostles or whether it's the church today, it was always the Spirit of God on the face of the earth gathering a people to himself. And I want to close with this portrait that you can understand the freedom in this. I want you to imagine the prophet Jonah. Everybody knows the story of Jonah. When Jonah is given the call of God to arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and speak the message that I've given to you. This is the first time in the Old Testament, to my knowledge, correct me if I'm wrong, church, that God sends one of the prophets of Israel to go and prophesy to a foreign nation. He prophesied, we had prophets prophesy about foreign nations, but he never sent one as a missionary into a foreign nation to call out against them. And when Jonah, you guys remember, he gets on the boat, he flees, he gets gulped up by a fish and all the rest, right, in order to go. His heart wasn't for them. He, he, kept the message to a minimum. We're, you know, the, 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 the prophecy, only, it only documents a few of the words that he spoke. And he's just like, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And what does God do? He brings the whole city to repentance and they cover themselves in sackcloth and ashes and he, res, he relents from the disaster that he had spoke that he would do. Like Jonah in that story is so dumb. And you are Jonah. <laughs> And I am Jonah. But the spirit within us does what he does. And if he can use a donkey, he can use you. And so we just go in the power of the spirit, not against our enemy, but for the lost, contending that they receive the word of the Lord and confess the Christ, that they might join us in the family of God and become our brothers. Not by any work of their own, because that's not how we had it happen for us but that they receive the spirit that we've received. And that's the charge. So I want to pray for these brothers now. I want to pray for the brotherhood, that we would repent. I mean, think about which one you are. We talked about these two responses, right? There are people who you pretend are not your brothers because they don't agree with you on a thousand things. I'll go as far as to say it, although it's helpful to be clarifying denominationally, like, hey, this is what we believe and all that, kind of know where a church stands, that I think denominations have been mostly Satan's plaything, not the Lord's 
plaything. And when we're like, hey, like, if you don't affirm all of these things, then you're not my brother. You shouldn't come here. You should go there. And we break up over all the things. Listen, if I think you're my brother and I think you're wrong, I'm going to fight for you. I'm not going to say go over there with all the other people who are wrong like you. This doesn't make any sense. How would anybody get better? How would anybody grow? And so you're welcome here. Whether you're on the outside looking in, you're welcome here, but you should be pretty uncomfortable if you're not a Christian. And come and, and I, I want to like, walk with you through that. If you belong to him, then you should be uncomfortable like iron sharpening iron. And I want you guys to sharpen one another. So whether you're somebody who tends to stand in judgment against people who don't align with you on all things, repent of that today. Or whether you're somebody who's like more universalist, who's like everybody is my brother, but they don't confess to Christ, repent of that because now you're not living on mission for the lost. In whichever camp you're in, have assurance that it's the Spirit who is going to advance this cause in the face of the earth. Let's pray to that end now.